today is a brand new day. And you have a choice to start transforming your life. Because when you commit to find the keys to unlock your true potential, you will unleash your superhuman powers. If you want to discover how to crush self-doubt, master productivity, bend time, accelerate your learning and more, you need to join us today because this is the Superhuman Playbook Podcast. Friends, welcome to the world of miracles. Hey, superhumans. In this episode, I am excited to introduce you to one of the other five-star coaches at Superhuman Academy. Her name is Erica Appleross, and she is an associate professor in philosophy of religion at the Center for Theology and Religious Studies at Lund University in Sweden. She has a background in philosophy, theology, mathematics, biology, linguistics, religious studies, and horticulture, and is also a certified dance instructor. Her chapter in the Superhuman Playbook is titled Embodied Learning, and guys, I gotta tell you, this was a totally novel concept to me, and has changed the way I think about learning in general. Erica has so much knowledge and is generous enough to share some of it with us today. So, without further ado, Erica Appleros. Erica, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. So, I already gave you a glowing introduction, of course, but if you wouldn't mind, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, I'm from Sweden. I suppose you may have told that already. <laughs> I'm working at the university as a, an associate professor of philosophy of religion, which is not all I've done. I've got plenty of interests and that's how I've always been. Some people may call me a bit changing too much, but that's because I'm not changing because that's part of me. I wanted to try out new things. That's why I'm changing while being unchangeable. Gotcha. Tell us more about that. What have you done? I've studied linguistics. I've trained to become a Bible translator in, in England, which I did, did not become, but I've trained for it. I've studied to be a gardener, worked in the church, worked with children. What else? I've studied theology. I'm a doctor in theology, and I've done the philosophy too. And now you are coaching students in accelerated learning as well? Yes, I am. I am, and I enjoy it very much. Yep, we got to get it's, that part uh, in there. <laughs> so how did you yeah. end up, from, from your background, so you've done a lot of things, how did you end up a Superhuman Academy coaching? Well, I did take Jonathan's course myself a few years ago, and uh, I, I liked it a lot. I benefited from it. And then I kept on getting, you know, emails and information from Jonathan. And one of those emails, it, it said he wanted to start a coaching approach to the course. And as I was just about that time thinking about how much I wanted to do something, because in, as in my role as a teacher, I, I do a lot of tutoring and supervising students, PhD students. That's the best part of my work. And I want to do that more. So his my email came in the right moment in my life. So I, I answered it and I chatted with Jonathan and people both thought that that would be a good fit. I think you're being a little too humble. I know some of the students that you've worked with have left rave reviews. And uh, I know you offer a lot of value beyond just what's in the courses. Yeah, we, we definitely appreciate having you around. You add a lot to the team. It's been really great getting to know yeah. you and all of your skills. And one of those and that I'd really love to dive into today is this idea of embodied learning. So that's the title of your chapter in the Superhuman Playbook. And to be honest, I had never heard of this concept prior to reading your work. It totally blew my mind. And it's something that has changed the way that I learned. So can you tell us a little bit more? What is embodied learning? 
Right, maybe you've heard about theories about cognitive embodiment or maybe theory of extended mind. It's about the same things. Cognitive embodiment is, you know, when researchers first found out about the mirror neurons, they were studying macaques a bit, but monkeys, about different things, their motion center. And just by chance, one of the researchers happened to, because the, the, the monkeys, they had electrodes in, implanted in their brains. He happened to look at the monitor for one of the macaques, was doing nothing, it's just sitting there. But he was watching another stretching his hand to take, I think it was a banana, but I might be making that up. <laughs> and the, the monitor on the still, the immobile macaque went moving. And the researcher didn't understand what was happening. It didn't move, but the, the monitor monitoring hand movements was moving. And from there on, there's been theories about what these mirror neurons does. If I do something, certain neural networks get engaged, of course, and my brain will remember what I've done. It will remember the associations with it and so on and so forth. And what the mirror neurons theory of those says is that when I simulate the same action, that is, I could watch someone else doing it or I could remember it, fantasize about it, dream about it, any way I could simulate it, the same set of neural networks gets activated, almost the same set, almost. It's still better to do the whole thing yourself, but almost the same set gets activated, which lets us understand a lot of things about how learning works in the body. Right. Essentially, what you're saying is that when we watch others perform some sort of action, the neural networks uh, that are activated when we perform the action are at least partially activated as well. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Now, in your chapter, you also talk about what you call the sixth sense, which is proprioception. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, what that means? Mm -hmm. I think that sense is a very, very exciting sense because I, a few years ago, I didn't know about it at all. I started dancing and uh, as a child, I was kind of clumsy. Maybe I still am, but <laughs> I started dancing. And some of the exercises we were doing, we were supposed to close our eyes and make movements and know where our limbs were in, in three-dimensional space. And I couldn't really tell. So, so what, was my arms moving correctly? The teachers he told us about this sense of proprioception, which is that there are sensory things, just as you have taste buds and you have light sensors. There are other sensory things that transmit the sense of location in three-dimensional space. And they're located in the sort of ligaments, I think is the correct term, in different places in the body. When you move a limb this way, uh, signals are being sent to the brain to tell the brain where my sort of hand is in relation to the rest of the body. In the context of learning, we're taught to, to invoke as many senses as possible because that will give the, the brain more hooks to, to hang the, the information on. And this sense of proprioception is yet another way to engage the brain and to gauge the whole body, to, to remember things, to learn things better. And I find that this very exciting. And it can be trained. I'm a much better dancer now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating. That was the, I think it might have been reading your, the chapter that you submitted. And while I was doing some editing work, that was the first time I think I'd been introduced to this concept. And uh, what really struck me is the applications that you described, everything, uh, and I won't steal your thunder here, but talking about the rituals and how you can actually engage your body in the learning process. So I want to talk more about that. Before I do, let me frame it this way. So the premise for this book was to extract and share the number one skill, idea, strategy, et cetera, from each author. 
And so this is where you brought up the embodied learning. Can you explain how proprioception, embodied learning, and rituals, all these ideas you present in the book, how can they be used to accelerate and improve the learning process? I want to touch a little on it. As you learn, if you sit still and you, you think learning is only about reading, reading your books or listening to them, somehow getting, getting it into your brain, that could work. But it takes a long time and it's boring, really, because our whole being is, is made to work in combination with each other. So where the body is engaged, the brain gets more engaged. And what we learn is encoded not only by abstract concepts, but it's encoded using the mirror neurons ability to encode information and abstract concepts in bodily movement. It gives us access to a whole a wider range of ways to encode information, to retrieve it, to remember it, to understand it. Right. So in the chapter, you explain the concept of rituals specifically as a way to take these ideas and actually apply them at how they pertain to learning. Can you share some of your rituals and give some advice to those who would like to craft their own? Uh, when I was a PhD student and wrote my dissertation, I didn't have a workroom study. I had to do it in my own bedroom and it was very small. So I had a bed and then a, one and a half a meter and then the desk with a computer. As you'll know, it's easy to procrastinate. So the step was to bring myself waking up to the computer and start working on my dissertation. So I developed a ritual. First thing I got to do when I switched on the computer was to play a game of cards. Well, a game of cards, it's called the king or the harp or different kinds of things, but only one, only one. That was enough for me because I wanted to. I, I liked it and it was, you know, should I make it this time, should I not? And tomorrow I, could, I got to, to play another game. And this was interesting enough for me to get out of bed, switch on the computer and just do the game. And when, once I've done the game, which was fun, I was already at a computer in the positions to, to start to work. And the next step to actually open my dissertation and start working on it was much smaller than if I was still in bed thinking about, oh, I'm, I need to open my dissertation and work on it. That's a much bigger step. So that was my morning ritual to start with the card game. And what I learned from that was that if you have a ritual, it saves you a lot of mental energy. If you don't have to decide what to do, I think most people don't consider, should I, should I not brush my teeth today? Should I, should I not? Right. It's such a difficult decision to make. We just do it. And that saves us a lot of energy. And it was the same with this thing. I didn't have to consider every morning, oh, should I? What should I do? Is there anything more important to do first? Or I just did it. I just did it. And that's the power of, of rituals, habits, routines, that you don't have to think, you just do it. Then you can have rituals that are good or bad or better or worse. And this was kind of a semi-good one, I think. It, it, it got the work done, but still, it could be better. It could be much better. If you want a really good ritual, a, a good way to get things done, it should have a low, I would say, threshold. It should be easy to start. Mm. It shouldn't be difficult. Right. And this one ticked it. It should, be, it should be easy. It should have some sort of addictive component. It should give you some satisfaction, some joy, something that would make you want to do it again. And it, it ticked that one too. That was good. It should be repeatable and recognizable. It should be the same thing. Not much variation. If you have a child, sometimes they want in periods to hear exactly the same bedtime story. Yeah. You're, you're not supposed to change one word in it they recognize and say no 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 that's wrong and the whole bedtime ritual is destroyed so a ritual should be 
very recognizable. Same thing every time. And this was recognizable. Same game, different cards, same game. What it didn't tick was two things, which I, I think a good ritual should have as well. One thing is that it should have some kind of intrinsic value in itself. Doing a card game, it's, well, it's fun, but, but, but it doesn't give me anything additional value. And additional value could be something, it could be helping me to grow as a person, it could be giving me some, my body some physical benefits or something like that. And at least, at least my habit wasn't too destructive. But the other component that I would advise to, to enter into a ritual is that you should ideally bring in some movement using your body. And my card game didn't actually do that. I was sitting in exactly the same way as I was when I was doing my, my dissertation. So if you can bring in that element to you have, in my opinion, an optimal recipe. But if you can come up with more things, I'd be just very happy to, to <laughs> include it in the list of components that a good ritual should have. Right, right. So tell us about some of your rituals today, or what would you recommend as well to people who want to start rituals that are really effective for learning? I would say to ask yourself, what is your, your learning? What was the subject? What can you think about that involves your in movement and that involves your body in connection with that? And then see how can it click together? That was very, very abstract, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but as an example, I'm, I'm learning Portuguese at the moment, trying to, and it's, it's really interesting to take advantage of the embodied learning uh, theories, which says, among other things, that the dances of a specific culture means that you're expressing in your body the cultural values encoded in the dance movements, which is fascinating, really. So when, when learning a language or learning a, a different culture, to dance the dances of the culture will get your body in the uh, receptive state for that specific underlying implicit cultural values that are encoded in, in movement, in, in dances, in it's called habitus, to, to give it a technical term. Mm -hmm. Those things that we just know without speaking about it without being taught it. We can't explain it either, how close we stand to each other when we speak, you know, those kinds of things. We just know it. And dancing is a very good way of getting into that. So what I do is I start my, my learning sessions by putting on some fado music and, and dance to it. That way I get, I get in tuned to the culture, I get in tuned to the language because it, they often sing in fado. And my body is also getting into it. So by doing that, the music and my body sends a signal to my brain that, okay, now it's study time for Portuguese. For another person, the, same, the very same action might, have, might send the signal to the brain that, oh, now it's time to get drunk and, and have a night out. <laughs> so so it's, not, it's nothing magic with what you do. It's how you connect what you do to your studies. Mm. That's the magic. If I do this often enough... Every time I go and start a study session in Portuguese, I put on the music and I start with the dance. If I do that every time, that will prime me for, for studying. And that for me, it has intrinsic value because it lets me know about another culture and it has a physical value because it gives me some exercises, it makes me move around. And it's also uh, repeatable because I use the same, same music, the same kind of dance. It's easy because it's fun. I like dancing. If you don't like dancing, maybe you could learn to like dancing, but if, if, if it's hell for you, I've don't been try trying, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it should be something that you want to do again. And it should be, okay, the song is over. Oh, I should like to dance another one, but no, I can do it again to the next study session. It should be that. Stop it while you still want to do it. And the next time you can, you can do it again. Mm -hmm.
I would like to share a couple of things that came to mind and that I've been trying since I've learned mm-hmm. from you. Uh, one thing I, I've been trying, and even as of this morning, I'm kind of scientific in my approach to trying to figure out what works, especially when coming to learning, because anything that I learn, I can pass on and help others to learn as well. But we teach students to read faster and retain information and improve their memory. And uh, so anything that relates to that is I, I find fascinating and really valuable. And so when reading this morning, what I actually tried based on your recommendations, kind of what I took from it, I tried to put away all those those techniques that I already know. I read one passage just normally subvocalizing in my mind or narrating the story in my head, just like a normal person would read, normal speed, and then tried to recall what I learned. And then I, I read another passage and this time, what I tried to do was actually use motions to coordinate with what I was reading. Uh, so if it said, you know, somebody opens a door, I actually did the motion of opening a door. Um, if it described uh, different emotions, I would try to portray those with my face, you know, facial expressions, everything mm-hmm. like that. I was very pleasantly surprised to find my retention was much, much higher. And I think, one, it, it forced me to engage with what I was reading because the only way I could perform emotion or, or mirror an expression was I had to pay attention, you know, to what was actually being said. I learned this a long time ago, but I never thought about it in the context of learning is that our facial expressions, we use them to express emotions. But uh, those two things are so closely connected that if you smile, you'll actually find that you become happier. It works both ways. You actually experience the emotion if you perform the expression of that emotion. And emotion is very powerful for learning as well. And so by doing this embodied learning or actually performing facial expressions related to what I was reading, I was suddenly developing an emotional connection with what I had read. And then afterwards, I could recall not only the ideas, but how they made me feel. And that emotional connection is something I, I've never even thought about trying to incorporate in that way until I read, read your work and, and those ideas. And I think that's, first of all, it's, it's much more engaging, but it's also you know, really effective and powerful in retaining information. So I thought that was fascinating. And you talked about in your chapter as well, and I'll let you speak to this a little bit, but uh, how we take even abstract concepts you talked about this with the, the cultural ideas, but can you share a little bit about the, the studies? I think it was related to mirror neurons as well. And mm-hmm. I'm specifically recalling the one about guilt and washing hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could tell you about that. First of all, sir, I'm really happy that you've worked for you. That's exactly what I suggested in the chapter to do yeah. when reading <laughs> and, and also when creating markers to try to do it with, uh, with the body. So I'm glad, I'm glad, thank you. About, about the study, it was really interesting. There have been several studies uh, performed to show how the abstract concepts having to do with guilt, forgiveness, and, and that, that kind, both religious and non-religious. And it's been shown, very interesting, that you have three groups of people. And the first group, they are induced to some guilt. They, they provoke guilt in some way in these people, different ways. There are many things you can, many ways you can provoke guilt. But after that experience, guilt feeling experience, one group of people, they, they got to wash their hands. Just no connection, but they just got to wash their hands. Another group of people got to watch a video of another person washing their hands. And the third group of people got to watch a video with a person not washing their hands, but using their hands to use a typewriter. And then they t- tested their level of guilt. There are ways to do that too. We won't go into that here. And it turned out that the first group, they had lost most of their guilt. And that was the group that actually washed their hands. Yes. And the second group who watched a video of someone else washing their hands, they'd also lost a lot of guilt. Not as much as the first group, but Mm. almost. Whereas the third group 
who'd watched someone uh, typewrite, they hadn't lost any guilt at all, which is very interesting. It's fascinating. It is, it is. I think most people would find it quite easy to understand that there'd be the action of washing your hands, getting rid of dirt uh, and getting clean is kind of natural connection to getting rid of guilt. And those are all very abstract concepts. Forgiveness is an abstract concept. Or when you get do sacrifices, religious sacrifice, that's very abstract. But they all boil down to the washing of hands. By washing your hands or simulating washing your hands, that is looking at someone, you can understand the meaning of the abstract concept of forgiveness. And it's not just a metaphorical aid, it's the actual origin of that very concept. And the embodied cognition theories, they claim that most abstract concepts, they do have a bodily origin. I think that is very, very, very interesting for learning to try to apply that in in various ways. And I'm not ready with this, not at all. But I I think the the abstract concepts connection and origin in bodily movements is something I want to find out more about. Me as well. Yes, I'll definitely be exploring the idea more. I, I definitely see an immediate application or at least something we could try to apply to one of the things that students often struggle with, with the techniques that we teach, and we teach a lot of visualization techniques and otherwise, is when they get to really abstract things and they have trouble putting a picture to it. Mm-hmm. And what I've always encouraged is, is try to think more more laterally. So a good example would be what you just described, like if if the idea was guilt or forgiveness trying to imagine or picture something that, you know, is more physical representation of that, like washing of hands would be a great example. But going beyond that is actually mirroring the movements or looking at a picture or watching somebody else do it, Mm -hmm. um, something like that, and using those as hooks for our memory to recall those abstract concepts, use something that is more tangible and representative instead of trying to just create a visualization for the concept itself, which can often be much more difficult. So that's really fascinating. Something I'm going to be definitely exploring more. To dive in a little bit deeper, uh, do you have any tips for super learners specifically? So these are people who have learned the super learning skill set. I know that might not be all of our listeners, but I know many of them will be. How could they use the embodied learning in conjunction with the super learner skill set to amplify those techniques? Oh, there are so many techniques, but the question I received <laughs> question, yeah, yeah, we're yep. a couple. But I received a question several times about how to how to deal with audible material, mm-hmm. sort of uh, audiobooks and, and and podcasts and such things. How to apply the skills on them? This is a case where you can you can use embodied learning, because if if you're listening to something, you're much more free to move around than if you're actually reading a book. So that would be a way to, instead of just sitting still and listening and sort of making markers or or writing your mind maps and doing things like that, take the opportunity, take the advantage of not having to to have a physical book and get up and and move around. And according to what emotions, it could be emotions, what what kind of arguments are being being made, act it out. If it's an argument with two sides, you may may want to switch from different places in the room. Your brain will immediately encode this. Okay, I'm on this side of the room. That, that, that pertains to this side of the argument. And then you, when you're from the other side of the room, because you have to move, you have to be very alert and move around for, for everything that is pro or con a certain argument. That. That's great. That's something you could do. You could also uh, adjust your pace to the emotional pace 
of the reading. That's a different genre, maybe. It's not a debate, but if it's someone is engaged, you walk faster. If someone is sad, you, you walk droopily. So that's one way of adjusting it. As Colin said, from reading, but you're much more free to do it when you're listening to something. You can enact the, the markers because when, when you listen, you, you do make markers, of course. Instead of storing them somewhere else, you store them in your body while, while you're listening. So you don't have to stop and, and, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So you just you just do them. And that is embodied markers for perhaps abstract objects, right. which is a, a training to do. Yeah, that, that's one example. Uh, one, one of the things that you said in the chapter that really stuck out to me, and I loved it because one of the, the big problems that students face and one of the thing, main things holding them back is perfectionism mm -hmm. and feeling like they can't get exactly right, so they won't do it at all, something like that. And one of the things you recommended is when you're dancing or when you're moving as you're learning, don't stop. Like, don't try to find the perfect movement in the moment. Just do what comes naturally and just keep going. There's really no mistakes, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's, that's true. That's so true. And that's a good thing why you're using uh, dancers. I think I wrote it about when trying to retrieve what you've read, something like that. Spaced mm -hmm. repetition. It's so easy when, when you sit with a book to sort of stop and, and go back. When you're reading, you're not supposed to go back, but stop and go back. Or what was it now again? And go back and find it. But when you're dancing, you can't just stop. You just carry on. That is a way to get better at not being a perfectionist. To take the next step, follow the music and just leave behind. Because if you don't leave it behind, you will miss your, your steps. You will get out of rhythm. That's worse. It's better to go through the whole dance. It's better to go through the whole, whatever it is, it's an exercise or, or a reading or mark making, whatever it is. Better to go through with it all and have it done. And the next time you do it, the next time and next time, every time you do a dance, you get a bit better. But you're not a ballerina the first, first time. Yeah, I think it's a, such a beautiful way to articulate that idea. So if you could leave our listeners, we, we got a wrap up here pretty soon. Uh -huh. uh, if you could leave our listeners with just one message, one key takeaway from this episode, what would it be? It would be, I think, to remind you that your brain, that is your mind, your thinking system, is all over the place. It's literally all over the place, all over your body. So take advantage of that and evolve your body and your learning. Amazing. I love it. One thing I'd always like to give our listeners a little bit of a challenge and some incentive to, to act on what they've learned. So for all of you listeners out there, go ahead and try this and let us know how it goes. And uh, we would love to feature your story. Um, if you learn something new, uh, something we didn't discuss in this episode, uh, related to these ideas that we could help all of our listeners to improve with, please let us know. Uh, you might be featured on the Superhuman Playbook website. Uh, you might even get in for an interview as well. We'd love to hear from the community and how you are using everything that you're learning in your daily life and to realize your goals and realize your potential. So Erica, one last thing, I wanna make sure that everyone knows how to learn more and where to reach you. So uh, where can people find more information about this topic and where can they connect with you and find your content? Oh, in the Superhuman Playbook, there should be references to my webpage. And of course, they can find me on the Superhuman Academy's coaches pages. I'm there. If you, if you go to coaches and you see my little picture, my name is Eric Aperos. You click there, you, you can book a free call if you want to. You could click, click onwards to my personal coaching page. You can click, I think, to my 
university website to see more publications if you'd like to do that or Excellent. just send me an email. Great. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to connect with Erica, learn more about this topic or submit something about your experience, and we'd love to hear from you, uh, you can find all those links as well in the notes for this show. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Erica, it was an absolute pleasure. I've already learned so much from you and I look forward to learning more. Thank you.